You're listening to Shift, Human First Financial Guidance with Ross Marino. Today, we are shifting the conversation with Dr. Megan McCoy. Hello there. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you on here. I was looking forward to having you on this because you describe yourself in a way that instantly engages me. And you told me that you take work from really smart people and you apply it to financial planning. That's the stuff I need to know as a financial planner. So before we dive into what we're going to talk about, how about you give everybody a, a one to two minute history on here's who you are. Here's how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So I am a therapist by training. I knew I wanted to be a therapist as a little kid. Just think that Charlie Brown therapy little <laughs> setting. And I loved it, but I wanted to learn more. So I went to my PhD in Georgia and I saw financial therapy and I was like, oh God, I need this. And this is all I want to do with my life. So I got into what's called financial therapy, looking at the intersection between money and well-being. And so I figured out, or many of us figured out, that we have hundreds of years of knowledge on counseling, on how to get people to change their behaviors in the therapy room. And so much of that is applicable to finances. So that's the smart people I've been stealing from. <laughs> well, I, I know as an advisor, uh, I, I love the psychology aspect. I obviously geek out on it. Enjoying what I'm reading is one thing, but figuring out how to apply it to financial planning, that's, of course, a whole different level. I know that's what you're doing, and you've got a project that you just did with the FPA, and it sounds like that's part of that. Could you tell us what you're doing there? Yep. So I currently work at Kansas State, where I teach in the financial planning department. So even though I'm a therapist, they let me sneak into the financial planning world quite a bit. And that's what I'm interested in. I started as a practitioner, and I want to do research that actually has tangible takeaways for planners that they can implement right off the bat. And so I was so lucky that the amazing Carol Anderson and Deanna Sharp, who uh, work with Money Quotient and is a faculty member, invited me on their study by the Financial Planning Association, where we looked at aspects of, of what about what we do with our clients facilitates trust and commitment in the financial planning realm. What are the questions we need to ask? What is How important is return on investment? How is important about values and that exchanging of disclosing of your own values and understanding their values? And long story short, the return on investments matter to tiny bit. The value conversations, they're asking the questions that get to know them, that personal connection, that's what facilitated trust and commitment. I'm a big believer that shifting the conversation to human first financial guidance does build the trust. Um, you've actually, of course, studied it. That's what your project did. So can you share a couple nuggets of what's in that report and what I can do? Yes. Yeah, so the white paper came out a couple months ago. So like anybody listening can read more. But the basic takeaway that I like to emphasize is Carol Anderson and Deanna Sharp did the same study in 2007 that we did this year that's getting published this year. And what they found in 2007 is that planners were very hard on themselves, that they wanted to be better at asking questions. But clients thought they were awesome. They all rated them really high. We did the study again, you know, just nine months ago. And what we found is the opposite. Now planners were very competent about their ability to ask the right questions, but clients were not as satisfied. Clients said, I expect more from you. I don't see financial planning as Excel sheets and accountants anymore. I see your job as connecting with me. And so our clients are becoming more and more, um, I don't know, higher expectations is the best way I can think of it. Yeah. And that's a, uh... That's kind of a wake-up call to planners because I'm sure I'm guilty of it. So you're saying that 10, 15 years ago, 
I was having these relationships, asking clients questions, and they're thinking, oh, you know, Ross is doing a really good job. And now we fast forward to 2021. If I'm still doing something similar to what I did 10 or 15 years ago, I think I'm doing pretty well, but it sounds like the clients are saying, no, th this actually isn't working the way I want it to work. Is that the case? That is absolutely the case. There's so much information available to us now that wasn't available in the 15. It's so much easier to Google things. There's also so much robo-advising and, and, and very affordable ways to invest and, and, and even track your finances that wasn't available. And so now financial planners need to provide those relational aspects, that ability to walk our clients through financial anxiety, walk them through what are their actual values? What are they working towards? Even walk them through when they're different in what they're working towards and get to the underlying conflict that can arise. That's our job as financial professionals now. And I think many people are starting to recognize that and are, are, are championing, championing <laughs> this desire to create those skills in others. I think 15 years ago, the, the internet wasn't as mature as it was today. And um, I was the, the keeper of information for much of this stuff. Or somebody needed a rollover, I can tell you how that works. I am a CFP. Someone needed to know, do they have enough money to retire? I can help you do that. I have financial planning software. Now, the typical questions where 10, 15 years ago, I may have been the answer man, I'm not needed for that anymore. So I wonder if you're also seeing a shift in the entire industry where information has less value, but now it's really more about insight. Insights, yes. You know, and, and being able to recognize that sometimes clients need more than just logic. That information uh, that you were discussing, it's on NerdWallet, it's on Infestopia. They could logically read it and implement many of the changes, but that's not how we make behavioral change. If logic worked, I would sleep eight hours a night, I would work out three times a week, and I would not be eating as much yummy fried food as I do. <laughs> like if logic worked, we would make those changes. Our job as financial planners is to move past logic and think about how else can I implement change? Like how can I encourage and motivate tiny little steps in the right direction that they know they should do, but they aren't doing. I remember a while ago seeing financial therapist and mm -hmm. my first thought was, I don't want to be a therapist. <laughs> right. And my second thought was, if they're marketing to financial planners, they're not trying to make us therapists. I, I need to check this out. Oh. So for people that may have maybe an immediate aversion to, I, I'm not qualified to be a therapist. I don't want to be a therapist. I, I've done some research. You're not trying to teach people to be a therapist. It's a little bit more nuanced and it has more value than I would initially think. Can you talk a little bit about financial therapy? I love talking about financial therapy. So it was actually developed in 2008. Before that, it wasn't even a word or a term that was used. And the 2008 is an important moment in time because it was on the heels of the Great Recession. All these financial planners, financial counselors were like, my clients are so stressed, they're so overwhelmed, they're so grieving that I can't get to the numbers, I can't get to the plan. And all these mental health professionals were like, oh, I hate talking about money and all my clients are talking about money. And so they came together and financial therapy originally started with actually financial planners and mental health professionals working together with clients. Now that is not a cost-effective motive for most people. And so over the last, what is that? Uh, seven, 10, how long ago was 2015? <laughs> 
<laughs> eight years ago. Um, they have been working on what are the core skills that we need to work on this spectrum where counseling's on one side and financial planning's on the side. How can we move up and down that spectrum based on what we're learning, our skills that we're going for, what our clients need? And so the Financial Therapy Association now is about 70% planners, uh, another like 10 or so percent counselors and the rest mental health prof professionals. So it's actually more financial professionals than mental health professionals right now. We would love an even mix of both, um, but it's amazing that financial professionals are seeking out more educational sources. Um, and, and I think financial planning industry partners are really recognizing that like, um, uh, CFP board, I just helped with their writing of the client psychology textbook. Um, I know FPA is doing an amazing um, badge with Brad Klons and Charles Chafin with the psychology of money. So I think that uh, both mental health professionals and financial professionals are benefit from integrating financial therapy, but that financial professionals are more hungry for tangible tools to implement it so they can stay within their scope of competence. So if I go down the path of financial uh, therapy, what are, say, two or three takeaways or, or aha moments that planners usually experience as they start learning financial therapy? Yes, I'm going to share mine and hopefully they'll be helpful too. My first one came from a book called Facilitating Financial Health by um, Brad and Ted Klontz and Rick Haler. And they have a chapter that says there is no such thing as resistant clients. And I read the sentence like four times because working with clients, I had a lot of resistant clients. But then I dug into that chapter and they explained resistance is rather a sign that you're, you as a practitioner is missing something. Maybe you don't really understand it. Maybe they don't even understand it. Maybe you're going too fast or too slow. Resistance is not within the client, it's within your relationship. And that little shift in thinking really, really helped me so much with my work. Um, and similarly, this idea of systems theory that comes from financial therapy, systems theory says that there are multiple truths in reality. So they always give this parable about blind men in India. All these blind men in India came upon an elephant. They all grabbed different parts of the elephant and started describing this creature they had never seen before. And each one was describing different creatures. Like one was describing a snake because they were grabbing their tail. One was like, oh, this is the inanimate trunk of a tree where they're grabbing their leg. But it got so tense that they said, no, this is the truth. This is the reality. This is what this elephant is, that they end up getting in a fight. And this idea that like we don't fully understand the full pictures, that we we should be curious about what else could be going on. What else are we missing? What else can be explaining seemingly bad behaviors and making more sense of it? That really also tremendously helped my work with clients. If I'm not going towards the human side of financial planning, if I'm asking prospects or clients questions, you know, let's be honest, most of the time, I probably know the answer <laughs> or the situation or where it's going if it's a finite topic, if it's yeah. numbers, if it's options of X, Y, Z, I probably know that going in. Um, I'm not going to go home at the end of the day after five or six meetings with clients and have to take a nap. Because <laughs> it's it's all known. But yeah. if we move towards this side where if there's a resistant client, it's because I just haven't uncovered certain things. I'm now asking questions and trying to acquire insight. And I don't know the answers. And in many ways, it's not even up for me to try to figure out the answer. This is something that the client has to walk through. Uh, 
That sounds a lot harder than traditional <laughs> financial planning, Megan. It can be so much harder, but gosh, it's so rewarding. It is the way to facilitate trust and commitment and also referrals from your clients and retention, but it is harder. I mean, very, very, very rarely do we actually listen to other people, that we actively are quieting the external distractions of the email, quieting the internal distractions of like making that shopping list for the grocery store or, or thinking about what you're going to say next or having the right answer. Really, truly listening is done so little time that when we give that gift to our clients, it is actually us working very hard to be quiet. It is us being really, really intentional about being curious about where they're coming from, being curious about their context. And it does take extra work that many of us weren't trained to do. Um, but I promise you, you will reap the rewards if you're able to really do that. And by the time you get to have this relationship, you really are human first, as you so eloquently put, eventually they are gonna be doing the right thing because they're gonna be doing what aligns with their needs, their wants, their values in life. So things will get easier eventually for you. So put in the hard work early on and then you can watch them flourish on their own. <laughs> you said something in there and you it was just a quick sentence, but it was it was like the gold nugget or the <laughs> mic drop moment that you have to pull out. And you mentioned that doing this is what builds trust and that's how you build your practice and, and get referrals. Um, that's actually, I think, the the issue that's going to attract more and more financial planners and advisors to this is we know once we're in the business for who knows months that that trust is it right if someone doesn't trust us they're not going to become our clients if someone doesn't trust us they won't remain clients they won't adhere to the recommendations and they're certainly not going to refer anybody to us i mean who says well i'm not sure if i trust this advisor but you should give him or her a call anyway <laughs> right it's ridiculous yeah. but this is really the ultimate ingredient to earn the trust of your clients that will help you grow your practice manage your practice, generate more referrals. This is really that magic bullet that if we can make that connection with people and really do more listening than talking, it's the ultimate success for growing a practice. Is that what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Ask the right questions and sit back and listen. <laughs> yeah, and, and I can tell you that I remember when I was shifting and realizing that I'm asking questions that I don't know the answer to and I can't know because they're true curious type questions, uh, that can be a little nerve wracking when right. you're used to being the answer man. <laughs> you have a question why I can tell you how that works and yeah. I answer with numbers and laws and, and how you do this and why you do that. But when you go into that world, it's a little bit different. And uh, you know, once people start walking down it, I, I think it'll change their practices. Oh, absolutely. And I think it takes with uh, it takes the first step is is really exploring your own stuff, right? Because it's really hard to sit with the not knowing if you still have maybe some not knowing for yourself. Maybe you haven't explored how did your parents talk about money? How do you and your partner talk about money? How do you want your children to talk about money? If you haven't done that work, then sitting in the uncomfortableness of not knowing becomes even scarier for us. <laughs> yeah, the, the self-awareness, I, I think, is a requirement to really be able to listen uh, to people, understand wow. them, have empathy for them, uh, understanding, are you an abundance person? Are you a scarcity person? Did, did you grow up with financial anxiety in your house? Was the, the Depression era relatives 
influence the way you were raised and the way you thought? Or did you uh, grow up in an environment where as long as you're working hard, there's more money and it's okay? I, I, I think that really changes people. Yeah. Just a few months ago, my friends, um, Kenneth White and uh, Kimberly Watkins and I did this paper where we forced financial planning students to go see a financial planner and actually experience what is it like to sit on the other side of the table? What do you want to hear? What do you want to know from that person? And it was amazing reading these responses. Like someone described feeling financially naked. Others talked about vulnerability. Others talked about like, I was so stressed and anxious that it was so such a relief how personal the financial planner was. These financial planning students who love talking about money, who are, are predisposed to enjoy talking about money, were so anxious, they weren't able to hear the numbers. They weren't able to focus on the financial plan. What they needed was the people. They needed the person to make them feel comfortable, to focus on who they are as a person, to focus on that financial anxiety before doing anything else. And I think sometimes we forget that in a false hope of demonstrating our goodness, um, our, our capabilities. Well, I have my reminders, which is the post-it for people who are watching on YouTube. Two words, think, feel. Uh, whenever I think I'm speaking too much, I try to go to what are you thinking and how do you feel? Oh. And what's really neat is, and I've learned this, that when I ask a client how they feel, they actually tell me 100% of the time. So <laughs> if you ask the question, be ready because they are going to answer and they're going to be genuine about it. And I'm not sure I would have believed that many years ago, but now doing it so frequently if you shift the conversation and ask somebody what they're thinking and how they're feeling, they're going to let you know. And now you're probably going to get to things that really matter. Oh, I love that. I remember early on, I was working with a planner with somebody who kept on talking about, I can't wait to retire to go fish. I can't wait to retire to go fish. And they kept on saying that over and over again. And one day I just said, how often do you get the fish now? And he's like, once a year. I was like, once a year? You're predicating 20 years of your life of 40, you know, how many hours in a week? Hundreds of hours on something you do for just eight hours a year. Like what else is gonna give you life? What else is gonna give you fulfillment? And it just opened this whole can of worms about what does bring them joy? What is their purpose? What is their passion? So asking the right question, being curious is always a gift. <laughs> yeah, and I know with retirement, and, and this, this is something I've noticed is, yes, people will say, you know, I wanna get a house on the beach or I wanna go fish. And maybe they do it eight hours a year, but the contrast between working hard and then taking a break is significant. When you retire, the contrast between what you do on a regular basis and going to the beach or fishing, fishing it's not as much anymore. So when the context changes, I'm retired instead of working, the contrast between that activity and what you're doing also changes. It's just not as big a deal. So we've watched people with all these goals saying, here's what I want to do when I retire. Then they go do it. It just doesn't seem to be the same thing. But to me, it's a context change. The contrast isn't as much. And all of a sudden, it's not as cool as they thought it would be. Yes. And it's also hedonic adaptation that all of us have this like zone of happiness that we kind of stick in. Like when bad things happen, we might go up a little bit. But then six months later, we're going to be okay. I mean, when good things happen, we'll go up and vice versa. So like we find this after you get married, after you buy a house, uh, after your first child, even bad things. Like um, there was a study with people who lost a limb. Sure. Of course, that's going to be devastating. But six months later, they had reached back to that that adaptation level, that pre-incident um, level, because we're so good at that. But 
if you're doing the same thing all through retirement, you're not going to have a chance to skyrocket up. You're just going to be stuck in that same level and the hedonic adaptation will get to you. I heard once that, and somebody on YouTube is definitely going to correct me because I feel like that's what YouTube does. But I've heard once that in Japan, the language for retire, the word for retire actually means the reason I get up in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, why do we, why does our word mean to like withdraw or like go to sleep? Where theirs is the reason, the passion to get up in the morning. I always thought that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, we're being put out to pasture and they're trying to figure out, you know, the reason for life with it. That's yeah. that. There's a contrast right there. (laughs) This this has been awesome. Uh, I am looking forward to you and many other people from the Financial Therapy Association to be part of SHIFT, to introduce you to a much larger audience because everybody out there who's a planner should understand what you do and how those skills can actually apply to growing your practice and managing your practice. Uh, Look forward to having you on again in the future. Dr. Megan McCoy, it's great to have you on the show. So lovely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Shift with Ross Marino. Please visit humanfirst.live to learn more. This show is for general information purposes only and is not intended to provide recommendations or advice. Speak with a legal, tax, or financial advisor before making any decisions. Past performance references are historical and do not guarantee future results.